This morning we're going to be talking about greatness. And if my sermons came from bestsellers, uh, I would tell you we're going to look at eight keys to greatness, how to unlock your hidden potential, charisma, competitiveness, confidence and self-esteem, drive, intuition, rebellion, risk-taking, and tenacity. Well, there's a place for some of those things. Um, But we're talking about what Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, says regarding those who belong to him by faith about greatness. And so we're going to hear something very, very different from those things. If you have a Bible, you can look at Matthew chapter 20, or I properly should say the gospel according to Matthew and the 20th chapter, where we will hear from Jesus about greatness. In a moment, we'll look at verses 20 to 28. Again, Matthew chapter 20, 20 to 28. If you're just joining us, um, it might help you to know we've been studying this gospel account now for some time as a church, and we will continue to do so. It's our practice to work through books of the Bible. And so uh, I say this every time, you came at just the right time. Because it's always the right time to hear from Jesus, whether we're in chapter 20 or chapter 28 or wherever it is. But let's hear what he has to say about greatness when it comes to people who belong to him by faith. If you would, follow along with me, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want to pause there because we won't hear anything as good as that because we've heard from Jesus. But one thoughtful observer did make this comment about our text. They said this is the most radical social teaching of Jesus, and it was a total reversal to the contemporary notion of greatness. It's a pretty good observation. It's not what they would have thought. Jesus himself even says this is not the way ungodly people do it. It's not the way we think either when we think of greatness. And so that's why I opened with what in comparison, is ridiculous from that best-selling book. But I can't help myself. I do want to have eight points and follow the example of that book um, just because I have a bad attitude. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what. A little sarcasm goes a long way sometimes. So what we're going to do is not look at eight keys to greatness from this passage. We're going to look at eight biblical lessons about the dangers of self-exaltation. So let's let's flip it, if you will, and draw some principles from this regarding the dangers of self-exaltation learning from Jesus. 
and we'll work our way through the text again with a little bit closer detail, looking to seek uh, application, if you will, uh, when it comes to what Jesus teaches here. The first danger of self-exaltation, I think we can um, observe from this, would be that self-exaltation is natural. This is natural for people to act in such ways. It's natural to want to be first. It's natural to want to be in the best position. Uh, and so let's make that observation. When Jesus says, or uh, when the mother of these two men say uh, that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left hand in your kingdom, well, at least she believes in the kingdom, um, and they do too, because according to the other gospel accounts, they're also wanting their mom to do this. She's not speaking on her own behalf. Uh, Mark's account tells us this, this is what they want too. They want to be first. And I think it's worth making the observation we all like to be first. I checked yesterday how many people are living on planet Earth, um, and according to census.org, 7,755,215,219, in case you wondered. And of all of those people, we know one thing to be true. We know many things to be true. But we know that according to Ephesians chapter 2, that none of those people are self-loathers. Now, maybe we don't like certain things about ourselves or our behaviors, but Ephesians chapter 2 says that no one ever hated his own flesh. We all have it in us, especially as sons and daughters of Adam, to want to be first even if it's in a sinful way, I want preeminence, I want to be noticed, I want to be the best, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be, comes pretty natural. And I'm stressing this today because I would like to look at our passage and say, those fools, they're so stupid, they're so dumb. But if no one hates themselves in the true sense, and we all want uh, as sinful people to be first and to be noticed and to be central, I think it would be good for us to make that observation. They're just doing what would come normal to someone. They're just doing what would come natural to someone. Now let's make another observation. Self-exaltation is sometimes encouraged by others. It's sometimes encouraged by others. We see it in our account with, let's call her, let's call her Mama Zebedee. Um, now I think it's generally true that mothers know best. Um, in my house, it was 99.99% of the time. Uh, my mom knew what she was talking about. She was wiser than the rest of us. And so I'm prone to take people who are older than I am, who've had more life experiences than I've had, uh, and to take their advice. They're, they're, they're giving good counsel. We seek counsel from people who know more than we do. Um, oftentimes, when a fa- and it's a family, you take good advice from people who are older than you do because they've gone through these experiences. But here's a case. I just want to point out the obvious. Someone who typically would have wise counsel. And here she has foolish counsel, spiritually speaking, because Jesus is not only going to correct the disciples, he's going to correct her. So before we keep this moving, and we're going to spend more time on some of these than others, but before we keep this moving, a takeaway for me is going to be sometimes people who are otherwise wise, godly, older give bad advice. And I'm going to remember that. Even those you normally count on, proverbially so, hard to say, sometimes can give you bad advice. And when it's contrary to what Jesus has to say, or the example of Jesus, if you will, then it's 
not good advice. It's not good at all. Selfish ambitions, bad motives, seeking self-preeminence is a bad look, and we see it in our text. Another biblical lesson we can take from this regarding self-exaltation, number three is that self-exaltation is a reality among believers. It's a reality among believers. Mark chapter 10, verse 35, names these two sons. In Mark 10, 35, it would be James and John. This is not Judas, though Judas was into self-exaltation. This is not the son of perdition. This is not the one that Jesus would say it'd be better if you weren't even born. James and John, key apostles. People who have books of the Bible named after them, if you will. They're the ones who are wanting to be first, preeminent, key places. Please. So let's make that observation. It's easy for me to say, oh, those unbelievers are so dumb. Unbelievers are so unwise. And it's always about self and self-promotion. And it just never ends. And everybody has the rock star penchant. And I'm just glad that we as Christians are not like that. These, these, these are disciples, major player disciples. And they, they don't have this right. They've got it wrong. That helps me to say, you know what? This is a problem not only out there, but it's a problem inside. Jesus is going to critique the outsiders, but he's going to say, you who belong to me and who are citizens of my kingdom, that's not how you learn leadership. That's not how you want to be. That, 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 that's, we're we're going to do it exactly opposite of those guys. One of my favorite people as a bad example, sounds kind of crazy, uh, regarding what Jesus is teaching here in self-love and self-promotion and preeminence would be the person we learn about in 3 John, 3 John verse 9, Diotrephes. If you're looking, if you're looking to have a baby, congratulations, uh, or maybe uh, be a grandparent, congratulations. If you're looking up Bible names to name them after, this is the second worst one. Okay? I can think of a worse one, and I named the worst one not too many weeks ago, and somebody told me afterward, oh, we have a relative named Judas. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> okay. Strange things happen. But Diotrephes, Diotrephes, it says uh, in Third John verse 9, who loves to be first among them. And it's not sent in a compl- said in a complimentary way. I like the King James translation because it's memorable. Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence. These disciples are Diotrephes-esque in their thinking. Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence. It's not good for you to loveth to have the preeminence. We don't want to be like Diotrephes. We don't want to be like the other disciples, quite honestly. Believers sometimes are some of the bad actors. I want to know that. I like to be smug and think, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to be like that. And we're a Christian church that teaches the Bible verse by verse. Well, these disciples would have been all about the Bible verse by verse. And they were all about Christ. And yet they're making a huge mistake here. And Jesus is calling them on it. And it's good for him to call them on it. Number four, a fourth danger, if you will, uh, regarding self-exaltation is that self-exaltation is sought after ignorantly. It's sought after ignorantly. To, to want to exalt yourself is actually ignorant. Uh, I didn't say it. Jesus says it, but he uses a little bit different verbiage. In verse 22, if you look there with me, 
you can see it says, Jesus answered, you do not know. Okay, you, you lack knowledge. You don't know what you're talking about. You're speaking ignorantly. In other words, you do not know what you are asking. So you're ambitious, you're zealous, you're excited, but you do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you are asking. It is ignorant to have such ambitions as this from this mother and her children. Then in verse 22 it says, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And the cup, we would know if we know much about the Bible at all. If you do, awesome. If you don't, let me help you. The cup, he doesn't mean a literal cup. He means to be taken literally as far as a profound point, but he's not talking about a literal cup. If you read in chapter 26, I think it is, when Jesus is crucified, borrowing from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, from the book of Psalms as well, the cup is sometimes used symbolically of God pouring out something, and it's wrath, it's judgment, it's uh, associated with suffering and condemnation. And Jesus is going to drink the cup. He's going to drink the cup of God's just justice and God's wrath. And there's going to be betrayal involved and suffering involved. Psalm 75, verse 8. Isaiah 51, verses 17 and 18. Jeremiah chapter 25. Also, Matthew 26, 39. The cup. Are you able to take to drink the cup I am to drink? And they say, oh, yes, we are. Yes, we are. And then Jesus goes on to say, well, well you, you, you are but it's different, right? Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath as a substitute. We're going to see at the end of our passage in a little while. He does it uh, uniquely as the ultimate substitute. He's saving his people from their sins. He's uniquely going to drink the cup, but he is going to allude to the fact and he's going to mention they too are going to suffer because they're associated with him. There is a cup for them. It's a bit different because we're talking about who he is and who they are. But if they belong to him, they are going to be persecuted. They are going to suffer. James is going to be martyred according, according to the book of Acts chapter 12. John is going to be exiled to the island of Patmos according to Revelation chapter 1 verse, 19, verse 9. And so Jesus does say in verse 23, you will drink my cup. There, 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 there will be Suffering, there will be persecution, though it's different. It's not atoning as his is, but there will be trouble. Then verse 23 says, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father, which is fascinating. He's not saying that there won't be people at his right and at his left, but he's saying that's already been determined. I just want to remind you that some things are already determined. I don't know why Christians have such a problem with that, but we have it on good authority. Some things are determined, and when things are determined, they're not going to be undetermined. Just remember. It's fascinating. might be unsettling. Now, this is probably a good place for us to make the observation that they're not, they're not acting in utter unbelief. They're doing the wrong thing, but they're not acting in utter unbelief. Because in chapter 19, Jesus said, you will be with me in my kingdom, ruling and reigning with me. 
So I'd like to point out chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, in one sense, I want to give them a break and say, they're eager, they're excited, they're believers. They're believing that they'll be there with him. But they're confused about what that looks like and the influence that it has in the here and now. But it's not utter unbelief. It's just immature. Room for growth. Needing correction. And so he is correcting them. Since we did look at that verse too, as a related important matter, let me point out the obvious with a point. The obvious is what you've been hearing from me today, if you've been listening, thank you to those of you, of you who have, is me taking instruction from Jesus and seeking to apply it to us. Okay? Jesus is giving instruction. Jesus is correcting. Jesus is saying that's wrong and here's what's right and he's going to keep doing that. And so in so many ways we're looking at these, these eight, eight ways not to act. Okay? Is what we're doing. But let's make sure that we understand this in its context. These are not eight ways to avoid. Don't, don't be uh, a self-promoter because Jesus says don't be a self-promoter. Uh, let's not take that and divorce it from or separate it from what he says in chapter 19 because I just read it, I thought of it. They're going to be in his kingdom. They belong to him. It's not, and if you avoid being selfish enough and if you're humble enough, you too can earn entrance into his kingdom. Don't mishear what I'm saying. They're going to be there. But they should act a certain way as those who are going to be there. So there's a huge difference. If you're hearing me preach law today, I'm preaching law. I'm preaching principles, right? Don't be self-centered. Don't be self-promoting. Follow Jesus' example. We're going to get to that. Instructions. Do these things. But it doesn't come so that you gain eternal life by being really good at doing these things. They're already going to be in the kingdom. He's already promised that in chapter 19. So I'm just trying to be clear on what the gospel is. He's providing atonement. He's going to, we'll see in our very text in just a little while. He will do what he does for them. Back to chapter 1 verse 21, which I do all the time. He is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So please, 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 please don't misunderstand. Uh, we're not saying as long as you're good at these eight, you too can earn your way to heaven. No, Christ earns everyone's way to heaven who's going to be there. It's his work. But Christians aren't called to lawlessness. Christians aren't called to, oh, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which is all true. It's absolutely true. And now we just live however we want to live. It doesn't matter. Let's fight for preeminence. Be ungodly, just like unbelievers. No, Christians are supposed to live a certain way. So I wanted to not um, avoid pointing out the obvious and point out the obvious so we didn't misunderstand. Okay, number five, six, seven, and eight, and we will go, we will go quickly. The fifth biblical lesson we can take away from this regarding self-exaltation, and that's that it is divisive. It is not unifying. It is divisive. We see it right here in our passage in verse 24. And when the 10, that would be the other 10 disciples, heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Right? This doesn't lead to good things happening. This leads to bad things happening. 
And we, we don't know exactly what's going on here. Maybe it's, we didn't even know we were talking, we didn't even know we were voting about this yet. I don't know that for sure. But, but they're upset. Why, why are you doing that? Now maybe they're more godly than the rest of them, but maybe not, but it's divisive. It's, it's a power play. Who can be on top and be in charge and have the control and have the authority, right hand and left hand? It's gonna be those. Well, I want that. No, I want that. Now, I'm better than you are. It's divisive. What Jesus is going to model is humility and service, which promotes unity, not divisiveness. James chapter 4 tells us that quarrels are caused by... Wouldn't you want to know that? Quarrels are caused by... James 4, 1. Your passions that are at war within you Your selfish desires is what he means. And he goes on to say in James chapter 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He also says in James chapter 4 verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's fascinating too, because it tells us that there was growth in godliness for James to understand better and come out on the other side and say, let me help you learn something that I learned from none other than Jesus, my brother. Let me correct my theology, his half-brother, strictly speaking. He would still make him his brother, though, right? Number six, a sixth point of application here from this self-exaltation is characteristic of the godless. It's characteristic of the godless. We see it happen here with those who belong to Christ, but it's not supposed to, but it actually fits with those who don't know God through Christ. How about verse 25, if you look there? But Jesus called them to him and said, you know, this is common knowledge. You don't need a Bible to figure this out. You can observe it yourself. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, unbelievers in other words, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. You you know how leadership works. You know, you know, you, you yourselves know, unbelievers know, they, 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 they understand how this thing, this works in our culture, society. And then 26 says, it shall not be so among you. Observe. This makes sense. This is how they do it. And then Jesus says, and don't do that. Don't do what comes naturally. Don't do what you were trained to do by example. He's turning it on its head. He's turning it on its head. You observe how leadership works outside and then say, that's exactly what we don't want to do, which is intriguing. It's very intriguing. You, If you've been a Christian very long, you've observed, tragically so, that sometimes, I'm not saying always, I'm not saying always and never, sometimes those who seem to be most naturally let's say gifted, quote-unquote, talented, able to be the leaders and to get things done, etc., etc., sometimes, I don't mean always, are the very worst people for the church. And before you know it, now the church has all kinds of conflicts that it didn't have before now that we have this wonderful, capable, proven... Because they didn't understand this basic idea. The key to this whole thing is you humble yourself and you serve and that's the kind of leader you're supposed to be. 
The, the contrast is meant to be strong. We even see it in our text. It shall not be so among you. You guys all know how this works. And then he says, dropping the gauntlet, so to speak, it shall not be so among you. In one sense, forget everything you learn from those guys. It's going to be different here. And I'm thankful for that. Seventh biblical lesson about the dangers of self-exaltation is that self-exaltation is the exact opposite of what leads to true greatness. It's the exact opposite of what leads to true greatness. In verse 26, if we read there again and then move past it, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So greatness, according to Jesus, is not based upon self-promotion and seeking self-exaltation. Greatness, according to Jesus, is based upon what? Service. Acting like you actually aren't great. Because who serves? The people who aren't great. And so you're acting like you're a servant, which is really interesting because they're the ones who belong in the kingdom, chapter 19, and will rule and reign with Christ. In one sense, you have to say because of the merits of Christ, they are great. And certainly Christ is great, and yet he's the great servant. And so you want to talk about greatness, the great ones, if they're Christ-like, are going to be the ones who are great servants. It's very fascinating what he's doing. Very counterintuitive what he's doing. For sure, that's happening. I would remind you that minister means servant. So even thinking, let's think about a different culture. Sometimes the the ministers, even in the government, uh, they're not the servants. (laughs) They're they're the power brokers. They they, want to be the minister in the ministry of you fill in the blank. To have more authority, more power, boss more people around, fascinatingly enough. Minister means servant. Uh, in Ephesians 4, all Christians are called to serve, and therefore all Christians in that sense are ministers. Sadly, again, in the church, sometimes the, the minister, if we use that verbiage, is the one who it's all about self-promotion and all about self-exaltation. It's contrary to how things actually should be. Should be the greatest servant. I've had occasion sometimes to see some of you at restaurants and you're with a friend, let's say, and it hasn't happened with too many of you, probably no one who's here right now. Uh, but I've had occasion where uh, someone's introduced me, we're eating at the same place or whatever, and they'll say, oh, this, this is Pat, he's my servant. No, they don't say that. <laughs> but they're saying that when they say, oh, this is Pat, he's my minister. And I know what they mean and it's all fine and good and I, it doesn't, I, I have an inner smirk. But they are saying, oh, this is Pat, I'd like you to introduce you to my servant. And it's true though. It's true. But you're called to serve me. And I'm called to serve you. It's pretty fascinating to think about. Great people don't serve others. Great people are served by others. Generally speaking. And Jesus is turning the whole thing on its head. First Peter chapter 5 verse 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you. So this just isn't only for the twelve. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So this is universal for Christians. With humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. 
clothe yourselves, all of you. One of my Greek professors used to say the best way to look at that and to shockingly translate it is, all of you put on the apron of a slave. Put on the apron. What do you do? Why would you put an apron on? Because you don't want to get dirty. Because you're doing dirty work. You're doing work that you wouldn't do otherwise. And you're going to do the work that other people don't want to do if you're a servant. It's maybe a troubling image until we think about Jesus as the suffering servant, the one who ultimately puts on the apron of a slave to save his people from their sins. And, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Different demeanor, different stance, if you will. And we do see it in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came. I'm thankful that the translation I'm preaching from today chose, the translators chose to capitalize Son of Man. In the Greek text, you don't, you, you can't tell whether you should capitalize it or not. Um, it's a translator decision. I'm thankful that they capitalized it because sometimes we think, oh, Son of Man, that's emphasizing his humanity. It might be in some cases. But you need to know son of man, the son of man is a label, it's a title, it's a technical title for the Messiah who would rule and reign forever. That's not emphasizing weakness, it's actually emphasizing greatness. Daniel chapter 7, the son of man. So even the king, the Messiah, even as the son of man came not to be served, which is how you would naturally think of it but to serve, which is not how you would naturally think of it, and to give his life, here's ultimate act of service, and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment, as an atoning sacrifice for, in place of, our wonderful reality of substitution for many. So what does it look like for us to want to pursue greatness? Well, we want to, we want to follow Christ. We want to imitate Christ. He's been saying all of these things, Don't do it like the Gentiles. Do it this way. Put on the apron of a slave kind of verbiage, even though I borrowed from 1 Peter. And now he ends on the high point, if you will. I kind of wish we would have started there. I'm not correcting Jesus. But I've I've been pretending like I know it's there because I knew it was there. He's the example. He's more than an example. And when people only emphasize him being an example, they lose Christianity. But he's not less than. He, He does this for... It says, many, so he's the substitute, he's the great substitute, he's the great savior, but as the great savior, he is also a great example. So we call ourselves Christians, Messiahans, uh, Kingians, that sounds pretty weird, just making up words for effect, Kingians. Royalty, chapter 19, rule and reign with the king of kings. All that's true. But it's not with the chest stuck out, arms folded, look at me, I'm awesome and I'm great. But you could see how we would come to that conclusion. But counterintuitively, it doesn't work that way. You belong to the king, you're a part of his coming kingdom, a present reality, though it hasn't happened yet. Servant, because even the Son of Man, 
did that very thing. Even the Messiah did that very thing. Christians of all people shouldn't be the prideful, arrogant boast, look at me, I'm so good, I'm so powerful, and I need to get my way, people. And sickeningly enough, sometimes that's the very people that we are. Just shouldn't be that way. Okay, finally, let's end, end with this. Uh, an eighth biblical lesson from our text regarding self-exaltation and its woes would be, number eight, self-exaltation is anti-Christ. It is anti-Messiah. It is anti-Son of Man. It is anti-Christ. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, for me to act like the opposite of that is true, is to act anti that is true. It's to act anti-Christ, anti-Messiah. So when Pat behaves badly, because Pat does sometimes, and arrogantly and pridefully and wanting to exalt self, or you or anybody else, and we name the name of Christ, we're speaking in contradictions. It's anti-Christ. It's contrary to Christ. Someone said this, if we trust in his death, we are to imitate his sacrifice. And that would definitely be true. For salvation, absolutely, positively not. But because of salvation, absolutely, positively true and right. So you can leave today, as one of my friends would say. Sometimes one of my friends says when he hears a bad sermon with no gospel in it, I say, how was the sermon? He says, the law is good. <laughs> because the law is good. Today's sermon has been very law heavy. Here's how you want to be. Here's how you don't want to be. Because Christians shouldn't be lawless. But you need to know that the good news of salvation is Jesus was humble for us in our place even our very text tells us that. And so salvation is of the Lord, not of our humility. Keep it in mind that the gospel is true. Therefore, we're not under condemnation from the law, but it is our guide. It is the light unto our path here from the mouth of Jesus himself. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great Savior in Jesus. And thank you that as a great Savior, he is in fact a great example. May we be men and women and boys and girls who seek to imitate Jesus because of what he's done for us. And may we live lives that are thankful for what he's done for us. May it fuel our devotion and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.